I just regularly go back to my parents. You know, it, sound, it might sound old school, but um, my mom taught me compassion. My dad taught me competitiveness. And between those two, there's a there's a leader in there somewhere. So if I get a healthy dose of both of them on a pretty regular basis, like, for example, this week we're playing a major. I'm flying to Palm Springs on Thursday, but I decided to go to Arizona first, see my parents, have dinner at their place, and then drive over to Palm Springs uh, just because, you know, another night with them in their 80s. Um, I don't want to miss any of those opportunities. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond High Street. Took a hiatus as school was off uh, since the end of last spring. Everyone's coming back into the flow of things right now. And our first guest coming back, Mike Wan, Commissioner of the Ladies Professional Golf Association, the LPGA. These are wonderful first guests back. Conversation starts with the question I've been asking many during these times. What have you learned the most about yourself the past six months during COVID? The conversation goes deeper into the value of mentorship and who he still calls on weekly for guidance, balancing comfort and challenge, and how to embrace the undecided. He also credits many of his successes to the learnings from his own mistakes. I really enjoyed the part about how Mike and a few Miami classmates actually created the London Exchange Program when he was in college, it was just Luxembourg, and how they created London when he was a student in Oxford, and the challenge a professor offered to him in getting 60 students and two professors signed up. To the students, he says, be adaptive, listen, and continue to learn. Here's Mike. The last six months, what's the biggest thing you've learned about yourself through this, either professionally or personally, that you've had to figure out and overcome? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I think when a leader gets into crisis, and that's what we've been in, you know, for 150 days of business crisis, um, you either um, you either realize you have a team you can hand the crisis to and watch them do what they do, or you realize you didn't build that team, and if you haven't, it's too late. And I've been in both situations as a leader, if I'm being honest, as I think about my career. I've been in some situations where crisis proved to me that my team wasn't as strong or I didn't have enough sort of diverse thinking in the team. Um, and I'm lucky in the LPGA's case. I mean, this was, a, this was a great and shining light example in the fact that this isn't about the commissioner anymore. Back in 2010, 11, 12, I might have told you that I was a really important cog and I was changing culture and, you know, all things that may or may not have been true. Um, but I believed it. You know, now in 2020, as I go through this and watch my team essentially take this over and guide me through, um, I even said to my wife the other night at you know dinner because we're spending a lot of time with dinner with each other and talking to each other for the first time because I'm not on the road. Is um, this was you know I, I think I grew up a little bit in this crisis because I think in the past I might have closed my door and tried to work harder personally. Um, I gave COVID-19 you know uh, not literally um, to my team and said you know you got this one and. Um, so it's been it's it's been eye opening one to see how good my team is and two to see uh, I'm a better leader if I let go as opposed to grab the rope and that doesn't come natural you know I mean I didn't have that in my 20s and 30s and probably was learning it in my 40s but I think the most important thing I learned is that uh, I've got a team that can pull us through um, and nobody's counting on Mike Wan to pull us through and that's um, like I said hard to say that out loud at 30 at 50 you actually say it with pride yeah well I often it feels you need to be too busy or forced into a different problem to allow you to let go and, yeah. and offer that up. And then once you do, you say, geez, I, why didn't I do that five years ago or something longer? That's, I remember that's being, at a, uh, being at a women's leadership conference. I don't remember which female executive, a CEO of Fortune 5 said, 
when I'm really stressed, I sit back and think about the few things that only I could do in this crisis. And I was in my head this entire time. I can't remember, it might've been Lynn Dowdy, who's the president, I think, CEO of, uh, of KPMG. I can't remember who actually said it, but uh, I kept thinking to myself, like, Mike, what can you bring to the table? Like what I really brought in this, you know, in the last 120 days is my relationship with our with our title sponsors. I mean, I know those CEOs. I consider them friends. They were going through crisis, so I needed to understand their business. I didn't need to figure out tour regulations. I didn't need to figure out safety travel. I didn't need to figure out testing protocols. Mm. I could, I could do that better than I could. Um, but in terms of managing the relationship, so you don't wake up, I've said many times in my business, the report card of COVID-19 COVID won't be how well you did in 2020. It'll be what your business looked like in 21, 22, 23. Because if you, if you did everything you could to make 2020 as good as it could be, you're in a lot of trouble long-term. And if you're mm -hmm. willing to sort of take the hit and take the asterisks that 2020 is going to be so that you could build longer-term relationships, you're going to actually be better in 21, 22, 23. So I'm excited to see what our report card looks like as we introduce the 21 season, the 22 season, because I think we handled this crisis with a long-term vision. And uh, like I said, I'm not sure if 35-year-old Mike Wan would have done that, but 55-year-old Mike Wan wanted to make sure that everything we built was still going to be there and more in two years, not, um, not trying to leverage that to get the best out of 2020. Yeah, we'll get into a little bit about mentorship and advice as it relates to Miami students in a second. But I'm curious, over these last six months or even the last couple of years, as you go through challenges like this, are there mentors that you still look to for guidance or folks outside the tour that either it's a peer group or more curious how you learn um, outside of the everyday? Yeah, you know, I've got, I've got probably three, uh, three folks that are on sort of my, you know, constant speed dial the once the once a week, the once every other week, the guy who hired me at Procter and Gamble at Procter and Gamble first interview I ever had with P&G. Uh, turned out to be later in my career, my boss. And then when he retired, they asked me to take his position. His name's Les Overway and was a lifetime Procter & Gamble guy, lives in Cincinnati. Even though that I've left, uh, we still talk quite a bit. He's just, a, he's just one of those guys that was more interested in my success than his. And you know, when I was young, I found that strange. You know, I found that almost uh, uh, abnormal. And now I'm trying to embody that at 55 that, you know, that he had, I think, you know, built in. There's a guy who actually went to Miami University, I don't know what year, Charlie Meacham, who's probably in his 80s now, who was, um, who was a Taft law firm guy in Cincinnati, was the head of Taft, was the CEO of Taft Communications, but was the commissioner of the LPGA in the 90s. Um, when I got the job offer to be the LPJ commissioner back in 2009, I actually turned it down. I, I wrote a really quality, I thought, heartfelt email to the board <laughs> and said, thanks, but no thanks. And the guy they had follow up with me was Charlie Meacham. Um, and after one conversation with Charlie Meacham, I became the LPJ commissioner. So it tells us what I think about him. Mm. Uh, and then I just, I, I, just, I just regularly go back to my parents. You know, it, sound, it might sound old school, but um, my mom taught me compassion. My dad taught me competitiveness. And between those two, there's a, there's a leader in there somewhere. So if I get a healthy dose of both of them on a pretty regular basis, like, for example, this week we're playing a major. I'm flying to Palm Springs on Thursday, but I decided to go to Arizona first, see my parents, have dinner at their place, and then drive over to Palm Springs uh, just because, you know, another night with them in their 80s. Um, I don't want to miss any of those opportunities. Mm. And uh, you certainly don't need to share the details of the conversation with Charlie, but give, give, me the one, give me one thing that you went from, no, thank you, great opportunity, <laughs> I'm going to pass, to I'm in. 
Charlie's like a good old Southern lawyer. He speaks about half my pace. He says, you know, <laughs> one fifth of my words and gets so much more done in that time. So Charlie <laughs> said, uh, we didn't know each other, by the way. We, uh, my mom had worked at Taft Law Firm when he worked there, but we never put the dots together until we started talking. But we realized we had a lot of friends in common. Charlie said, I Googled you, Mike, uh, which is interesting. And he said, I read an article where you were quoted as saying, the only thing that's important to you as a father is that your kids have the guts to follow their dreams. And I've mm. said that in, a, in numerous articles. So I said, yeah, Charlie, that, that sounds like me. I, I want my kids to be gutsy enough to go for the dream that doesn't make sense, you know, because um, my dad kind of, and my mom gave me the freedom to do that. So he said, let me tell you something about kids, Mike, you know, it really doesn't matter in their teenage years what you say. So I said, you know, I kind of rolled my eyes and said, Charlie, you're going to tell me that teenagers don't listen. He said, nope, quite to the contrary. I'm going to tell you that teenagers watch everything you do. If you say don't text and drive while you're texting and driving, they see that they learn pretty early that what you say is important, but what you do sets the example. So he said, I read your letter to the board and you said, this is a dream job and something that you would really be passionate about and give back to the game that you love. And like, this was really, this was really the one job you'd like to do sometime in your life, but it doesn't come at the right time. It doesn't come at the right location. Um, and your kids are at a key age where you traveling all over the world is going to be tough. And he said, let me just make sure you understand this. Your kids dream job, their passion will never come at the right time. It'll never come in the right location and it'll never be the right thing for their family. And if you don't take it, Trust me when I tell you, your kids are watching you. Doesn't matter what you say, they're watching you, which is, yeah, follow your passion as long as it ticks all the boxes. You either follow your passion or you don't. And I mean, as you, even I'm getting goosebumps telling you the story because Charlie just nailed it. Like I wanted to take the job. I just didn't want to screw up my family. And mm. um, he just said, if you really want your, if that's the most important things, lead by example, show your kids it can be done because then they'll take the leap when the job happens for them, you know, so I don't know if it was the greatest sales pitch of all time, but I've no, had it. it. Sounds and good. And 11 yeah. years later, I'm still buying it. So, yeah, I'm sure you got up that call thinking, I need to take this job. He said, I wish I hadn't had that phone call. <laughs> you I walked in the kitchen. Today. I must have a look at my face. I walked in the kitchen <laughs> back in California, and my wife looked at me and she said, What happened? And yeah, I said, What do you knew. mean? There's something happened. I've never seen that look before. So, <laughs> she knew. I said, you I think I said, You better sit down. Yeah, yeah, we can read each other pretty well. Well, one of those three you mentioned less of P and G. So let's go, let's go back to Cincinnati and go back to Miami. What what brought you to Oxford as a uh, freshman? So I was a football player in high school and I was a quarterback. And um, you get I forget what it was four or five visits as a as an athlete to school. So uh, Miami was my first football visit. So I went up there on a Saturday morning. Um, uh, you know for. For the kids at school today, they wouldn't recognize this because you know it was, it was when my when I was a senior in high school, the um, the the college the, the football stadium was right where I think the medical building is, kind of like right by the the baseball field used to be. Maybe the baseball field's not there either, but by Goggin Arena, I guess. And yep. uh, I guess Goggin Arena is probably not there anymore. So um, so we we walked down Fraternity Row uh, from Millette Hall to Fraternity Row over to the football stadium on a Saturday morning at nine o'clock. Um, you know, the fraternities were having, you know, were having, you know, pregame, you know, fire ups and tailgates. The sororities were all like, you know, were all dressed in black dresses heading over to the thing. And it was, you know, it was a beautiful Saturday morning. And I really, I really did like the coaches. And um, we were walking there and I was walking behind my parents. And, you know, my mom looked at me and I was staring up like on the roof of some fraternity house, you know, where they were rolling out a banner about beat somebody. I can't even tell who they were playing. 
And my mom said, are you, are you, are you going to be, are you going to be at Miami university? And I said, just as soon as I can, I, I actually <laughs> I went and visited my other schools. I actually didn't get a scholarship to play there. So I was a walk-on. I mean, I was a walk-on for three weeks. I, I stopped after three weeks, which is a, yeah. a whole another humorous story. When I saw the first depth chart, I realized that uh, I still thought I was going to the NFL, but my coaching staff disagreed. And, um, but I knew it was, regardless of the football team, I found a place that felt like home. And when I was walking around, it just seemed like a place I would fit in. I moved to Cincinnati my junior year in high school. So Miami still felt like a long way from home for me. I was from Chicago originally. So I think for a lot of Cincinnatians, Miami was too close. For me, Cincinnati still seemed like a long way from home at the time I was looking for schools. So um, it felt like a getaway. It felt like um, it, it felt safe. And like I said, between everybody I met that day just seemed like somebody I'd known a long time. So um, you know, I think college is, is, is one about being challenged and two about being comfortable. And I felt at Miami, I could get both. I could get challenged because mm -hmm. I knew academically it was strong. And based on the people I met, I felt like I could be comfortable there. Mm. And, and through the four years in school, was there a particular uh, class or professor or peers or just the ability to go mature and be independent um, that really helped you propel to get that first job at P&G? Well, I mean, you're like this. I did a few, you know, sort of entrepreneurial things that nobody, that not only did people not stop me from doing, but, you know, we sort of got rewarded for them. I mean, we, we set up a, uh, I don't know if these things still exist, but for the first ever tuck-in service our freshman year where girls could hire the boys to come and you read a bedtime story to a girl <laughs> and you gave, her a, a, uh, you gave her a head scratch and gave her a kiss on the cheek and she went to bed and they paid you like 10 bucks to come do this. <laughs> we are my whole freshman dorm did this we ended up paying for this huge end of the year party with a band and everything else with the tuck and so i remember explaining that to proctor and gamble in an interview and they're like seriously mike you got paid to go tuck in girls i said you know it, it sounds weird now but it, it was just it was just a really fun way to meet people but you know when i was a junior and senior i talked a couple of local uh, industries into having me be their their um I forget what I called it, their student consultant. And I created a student consultancy business with a pizza place, with a bookshop, and um, you know, essentially give them insights on how to better market to, uh, to, the, to the college students. And looking back, I mean, I, you know, what did I know and not know? But what we did in that one pizza shop, I worked for one of the bars. I worked for, you know, like I said, for another bookstore. And I was able to kind of build some marketing and sales skills outside of the classroom that I think, you know, looking back was um, gave me the confidence to fail, gave me the confidence that I had this idea and I'm going to pursue it. Know how to, how silly people think. Um, Daco was was a finance professor that'll always be in my mind. I mean, Daco sure. was was influence on a lot of people. But what I liked about Daco is I, I was a pretty good student and always, you know, considered myself a a straight A student. And um, Daco didn't allow you to sit on an A. Like, you know, I, I knew I could get an A in his class, but he pushed me and a couple others to really go farther and faster and work outside the classroom. And it was my first experience with being an A student wasn't enough to win the approval of a teacher. Uh, mm. He was literally disappointed in me by not doing more work. And so um, kind of tapped into the work ethic that, you know, maybe was in there, but I wasn't using in, in school. And then when I was, um, when I was a junior, I talked, uh, I think his name was Dr. Carpenter from the marketing department into starting a, um, a business program overseas. At the time, all we had was Luxembourg. And if you went to Luxembourg as a business student, you essentially were committing to another semester at school. So you, you not only had to talk your parents into paying for Luxembourg, you had to talk them into paying for another semester at Miami. So I went to the marketing department and we established the first 
first ever non-Luxembourg program in London. And his <laughs> challenge to me was, you have to find me 60 students. If you can find me 60 students, and I think it was 60 students and two professors. I got the two professors in my first two office visits. They wanted to go to London. But then I started going to classes, big econ classes, finance classes, and I got, I got 110. My roommate and I, Rick Hendricks, who was the president of, of, uh, of a bank, you know, recently just retired. Looking back, that was our first entrepreneur. So we went out and we, we got 68 students. We had 110 students. We had students on a waiting list. And we started the London program. We actually had to find a, a hotel. Uh, we had to work on a curriculum with the professors. We decided to have a spring break in the middle of the London program. So I'm excited to know that the London program and a bunch of others still existed. Back in uh, 1986, Luxembourg was the only international program at, the, at, uh, at Miami. And so we established the second one, which was London. Hmm. Which is now a, a real program. Back then it was a hotel outside of the Marble Arch. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right, so then you finished school and, and P&G, they're, they're recruiting on campus uh, senior year. And um, so you ultimately get a job there. At the time, did you think brand management is where you did – you, did you know what that meant? Or was it just this marketing and skills and entrepreneurship or entrepreneurial mind that you had? You just needed a good, solid first job to keep learning. Yeah, if I was honest with you, I had told my parents and most of my friends that I was just going to go on to grad school. Not, not because I had this huge grad school bent. It's because I had no clue what I wanted to do. And I felt like all my friends knew. You know, that person wanted to be an accountant. That person wanted to be in communications. She knew she wanted to do PR. He knew he wanted to. And I couldn't answer those questions. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was excited by business, but could take it or leave it. And I just felt like I needed more um, experience to be able to really pick a career. I felt unprepared to choose a career. And uh, so I started applying to grad schools. And in the midst, I got invited to a P&G brand management kind of wine and cheese on campus. Uh, and a good friend of mine, I, I said, yeah, I'm not going because I know I'm going to grad school. And a good friend of mine said, Mike, you're going to have to do a couple interviews and you have to do some of these just to get the experience. And what better experience than a P&G interview? And if you don't care, then it's even better. You know, so I went to this wine and cheese thing and this, this guy stood up and I remember his name, Pat O'Brien, became a friend later in life. Pat O'Brien, who'd gone to Miami was the brand manager of Scope Mouthwash when he stood up, started talking about brand management and what he did and what a normal day was like. And I remember thinking, that guy doesn't know what he wants to be either. Like he, he's doing a little bit of everything and, and a lot of nothing. And if I asked him you know, what, what his career path is, I don't think he'd know the answer. And for the first time, it was okay not to know where your career was going to lead. Everything else you know, even the resume that the professors would ask you, it would always start with career objective. I couldn't get past career objective on the resume. So I thought, mm. I just figured I wasn't ready. So I'd keep going to school. So when I met the P&G brand management people, I thought, this is a bunch of people that could be in seven different places at the end of their time as brand managers. They could go into finance and sales and marketing and entrepreneurship. So uh, the brand management thing, it just bit. I mean, the bug hit me. And uh, I remember in my offer from P&G, from last, the guy we talked about, he said to me, Mike, I want you to come spend the rest of your life at Procter & Gamble. And I said, hey, Les, here's my deal with you. I'll come spend two years there, maybe three, but then I'm going to go back to grad school. Um, but I think, it would, I think I could be good for P&G, and I think you could be good for me. And he goes, that sounds like a great plan. Why don't you come spend two or three years at Procter & Gamble? I mean, he, he and I have laughed about that many times. He knew what I didn't at the time was I was going to go get my MBA at, my, at P&G. But... Um, but that's what I did. I, I, I thought I was going for two or three years. I stayed about nine or 10. <laughs> never got my MBA because, I, because of the experience I got at P&G. Yeah. And then when you ultimately left P&G, and I know you've gone to a number of different places from Wilson and, and TaylorMade and some hockey and jumped out of sports for a little bit and 
and obviously the last 10 plus at LPGA. At what point did you know what the path actually was? You mentioned with Pat, you didn't yeah. know then, and he didn't know then. When, when did you say, I want to do X for a living? Yeah, I would tell you, if, I, if there was a book of Mike Wan, it would be the mistakes showed him the way. So I thought I was going to be an NFL football player, went to Miami, but the mistake showed me Miami. You know, I thought I was, you know, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I thought I was going to grad school. So I went to P&G and the mistake showed me business. So when I was about 27 or 28 at P&G, a couple of guys I knew from Procter & Gamble had left, older guys, my age probably at the time, had left, started their own company, taken it public and really nailed it. They were in Tampa and they, um, they offered me a job as a VP of sales and marketing. It was a small little startup, but it had a lot of money in Tampa. They offered me a signing bonus and a car allowance. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I thought only athletes got signing bonuses. You know, so I, I flew home from Tampa to tell my wife the great news. You know, we we're going to leave Cincinnati and move to Tampa. I was going to be a VP. We had a signing bonus and a car allowance. So I took my wife to dinner, pregnant with our first at the time. And I did my typical Mike Wan, 100 miles an hour speaking, never stop. And she, I finished kind of giving her the spiel and she said, I'm disappointed in you. And, you know, I can, I can handle a lot for my wife, but disappointing her is a hard one for me. So I said, disappointed. She goes, you've been talking for 25 minutes about signing bonuses and car allowances and glass office buildings and seeing the ocean. I don't even know what this company's name is. I don't even know what they do for a living. And you don't seem to care. Like she said, I feel like you're selling out at 28 years old. I mean, the term sellout was still in my brain, you know, four That's years tough. later. And uh, I remember thinking, she's right. Of course, I continued to argue and try to talk her into it, even though I knew she was right. Yeah. I really didn't like the product. I really could care less about what I was doing. It was just a really great bump in income and a really nice bump in the, on what it said on my business card. But it wasn't what I was passionate about. So I turned the job down. And the recruiter, who was from Chicago, who was trying to put me in the job, flew into Cincinnati to save it, you know, because he's not getting paid unless I take the job. And at the, at the precinct over a steak dinner, I finally looked at him and said, hey, listen, I'm not taking this job. Like, we can keep talking about it. And to his credit, he kind of changed on the dime and said, let's talk about what you are passionate about. What do you do when you're not PNG? Where do you find peace? Where do you go when you're really, uh, when you're really happiest? And almost every answer I gave him was related to golf. You know, I worked mm. on a golf course when I was in junior high and high school, cut greens, cut fairways, changed pin placements, built walls, irrigation systems. I mean, if it was on the outside in a golf course, I was part of it. You know, my dad gave me the birds and bees speech on a bleachers behind the ninth green. I learned about my, uh, my sister not being well health-wise, walking down a fairway with my mother. So I would say a lot of people have Sunday dinners and they get together and the family talks. At the Wan house, it usually happened on a golf course. So to me, golf was almost a religious experience. It's a, it's a comfortable, homey, uh, returning to your roots kind of place. So I told him these stories. And about six months later, he called me and said, um, Wilson Sporting Goods is looking for a head of their golf ball and golf glove business. The CEO is a former Unilever guy. I think you'd get along. And so I met that guy at an O'Hare airport and we argued for four hours. I thought for sure he hated me and I wasn't sure if I liked him or not. And the next week he called me, offered the job and, and I took it. So um, again, failing on the Tampa experience, realizing that my wife was right, realizing that it had to be about more than that. I ended up taking a job that was half the price of the Tampa offer to go work in Chicago for Wilson to really follow something I was passionate about. Mm. So as you've gone through that and following the passion seems to be a key phrase and sentiment I hear often. What do we, what do we say to these 18 to 22 year olds that are at home or 
They are in a dorm, but their class is online. What, what, what are some of these tips or thoughts of knowing that they're going to be working for the next 30 or 40 years of their life? Right. Um, and they don't know that path right now. But if you, if you could be 18 again, but you knew what you knew now, um, you obviously want to do some things in college that you, you're glad you didn't know, of course. But what, what's that tip you give to some of those kids or to yourself 30 years before? I'll give you the same tip I give to my kids. Not all of them followed it, which is typical of your kids. But I'll, every, every intern we bring into the LPGA, every new hire, uh, I call it embrace the undecided. I find that somewhere along the way in the last 50 or 60 years, we've gotten uncomfortable with kids that are undecided in their career path. Uh, I took, I remember taking my second son to colleges and we would, we would meet the tour person would come out and say, how many people are going to be engineers? And they'd, how many people want to be accountants? And they'd raise their hands. And I remember thinking, I hope she doesn't ask me because I don't know what I'm going to be in five years. And I'm not 18 when I clearly didn't know. And I, and I think that think back to my career, the greatest moves in my career have been because I didn't have a clear vision of exactly what I had to be when I was 50. I have a really good friend from Miami who knew he wanted to be a CEO of a of an accounting firm, and that's all he wanted to do. And he went, to, he went and worked in accounting and did it for 35 years and couldn't wait to retire because every move in his career was completely predefined. And he knew it at 16. So mm. there were no detours. If he had an offer that didn't, well, wasn't on the way to that vision, he just said no to it. And I got to tell you, my, the best part of my life has been the detours, you know, the, the things I didn't <laughs> seek. Because I didn't have this ultimate goal, I didn't know that the off-ramp was exit 130. I just knew that there'd be an off-ramp along the road. I took a few paths that maybe, uh, that maybe weren't, weren't wise. And I went to college originally to be a sportscaster. I mean, that's what I went to Miami. I was a communications major in my first year. I changed into econ and finance just because I thought it was challenging and something that I found hard to, hard to do. And I wanted to be personally challenged. But I didn't really want to be a sportscaster. I didn't really want to be a banker. I, you know, I didn't really see myself as an economics professor. Um, and as a result, it was always scary to be undecided. And what I would tell you is um, the best leaders that I've been around in my career are still a little undecided. They don't consider themselves a great salesperson. They don't consider themselves a great chemist or a great doctor or a great, they consider themselves uh, good listeners and they consider themselves willing to be adaptive to the situation that they're handed. And I think when you are, when you are so clear about your path, you tend, to, um, you tend to turn a lot of things down that simply don't in your mind fit the path. And the path is actually the fun part. So if, you're, if you put blinders on in your 20s, man, you're gonna miss a lot of the, of the best parts. And you, and you run the risk of waking up not in a place you never expected, but better than you expected. I'm in a situation now that's better than I envisioned when I was 18. The only way to wake up in a better spot than you envisioned when you're 18 is to be bold enough to take a few detours along the way. Thanks for joining. Welcome back to Beyond High Street. Hope to see it all at Skippers real soon.